This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health, where we take an in-depth look at health issues and challenges and the research trying to solve these problems. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show... So it's not the human that becomes resistant, it's the microorganism that becomes resistant. Antimicrobial resistance. You've probably heard that term thrown around a lot in recent years. And today, we'll take a look at how these resistances are bringing back some diseases we thought were long gone. And how effective are campaigns like Dry July in steering people off alcohol in the long term? It's almost like binge sobriety became the antidote for binge drinking. That's today on Think Health. But up first... They're trying the same tricks again. Um, And I guess a lot of the the medical community is not wanting to kind of fall for those, those tricks again. This is David Chapman from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And their advertising, at least in America, is using the same type of things as companies did 50 years ago. Now, Willie Hoppy, how mild can a cigarette be? Well, I've been smoking camels for 20 years. I know they're mild and they really taste great. Yes, camels. They're using celebrities, they're trying to make it look cool, they're doing sporting events. There's a lot of thought about the flavours targeting kids. Uh, And so there's. How so? Well, you've got all these like bubblegum flavours, um, all these kind of flavours that you would associate with kind of kids' lollies um, and candy and things like that. There's thousands of different flavours. I mean, some of them don't even make sense. Um, Angel <laughs> Lust was one that I saw on a website. Um, some of the stuff that I've used is like peanut butter, um, licorice, trying to look at whether those individual flavours, uh, even without nicotine, are bad um, for the lungs. And if you're not sure what David is referring to, He's talking about e-cigarettes. Initially, they were designed by, I think, a pharmacist in China who wanted to quit tobacco cigarettes, and so he designed this device. And from there, it's, I guess, unofficially, they kind of try and market them as, as an alternative. And now a lot of the companies are owned by Big Tobacco, which kind of raises a few uh, red lights for a lot of people. Um, Some of the e-cigarette companies? Most, most of them, yep. Most of the e-cigarettes now are bought out by kind of Big Tobacco companies. I have vape liquid here. Okay, yeah. This is, yeah, this is electronic vaporizers and e-liquids. It's a bit yeah. sticky. But I'm looking on the side here and read the ingredients. Uh PG, um, which is propylene glycol, VG, which is vegetable glycerin, natural and artificial flavorings um, may contain traces of nuts and dairy, uh, keep out of reach from children, <laughs> and only use in electronic vaporizers. What is, well, let's start one by one. What is PG? Uh, so that's propylene glycol. Um, so the propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin um, essentially used to make the smoke. Propylene glycol is used in smoke machines, kind of back in the day at dance clubs or whatever, that that smoke machine is propylene glycol, just to kind of give the illusion of fog, or in this case, kind of, it actually looks like smoke. 
as opposed to coming out looking like nothing when you breathe out. Where do you get that from? Like, what is it extracted from? I'm not actually totally sure. I'm guessing those two uh, propylene glycol is synthetically made. The vegetable glycerin, I don't know if that's plant-based or now synthetically kind of done. Um, right. I would guess that it's probably synthetically done in the um, the amount that's kind of needed for these thousands of different e-cigarette flavors and, and things like that. I used to be a dancer and I would perform frequently on stage and when you have the smoke machine going full blast and you're ingesting it, it is not pleasant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and that's totally been shown that, yeah, it's, a, it's an irritant. So it kind of hits the receptors in your lungs. You might end up coughing a little bit, may feel like it's a little bit tougher to breathe. Um, and that's exactly what you're doing with, a, with an e-cigarette, except you've got a tube going straight down into your lungs. When you're ingesting the vapour from an e-cigarette, is it essentially, it's going down the same tract? Yep, yep, definitely. Um, There may be slight differences in where those chemicals are going. Um, So there's a little bit of work on people smoke e-cigarettes differently than they smoke tobacco cigarettes. Uh, E-cigarettes, they seem to take longer puffs um, and more kind of air going down. And that may just change the type of cells that they're hitting. So if it goes further down the lung... There's some work in America suggesting that some people actually hold their breath when they, they smoke the e-cigarette, so people can't tell around them that they're, they're smoking an e-cigarette or something. And when you smoke a tobacco cigarette, you can see a lot of that smoke coming out. and the first, Smell it. <laughs> and you can smell it. And so if that's coming out of your mouth, it's not staying in your lungs. And there's obviously definitely a lot staying in there. But if you're an e-cigarette user that holds your breath and then nothing comes back out, then everything's stayed in your lungs. And so one puff of a tobacco cigarette may not necessarily be one puff of a, of an e-cigarette. And while they both go down your lungs, there may be kind of a little bit differences, which we don't really understand at the moment. So is it bad that you might be ingesting that PG and VG? No, most, most certainly. There's definitely a bit of research out there that it is an irritant, how bad it is kind of long term. So obviously you're there dancing with a smoke machine or whatever. You, you don't feel great at the time. 30 minutes later, you're out of the smoke. You're no longer with that irritant. It's no longer affecting your lungs. But if you do that over many, many years, we still don't know whether that in itself is, is going to cause an effect. It's kind of sneaky because I looked at this and I'm like, oh, okay, natural and artificial flavorings may can trace nuts and dairy. I kind of overlooked the fact that it's got this PGVG sort of thing. Yeah. Like You just look at that and you're like, yeah, that's, that's all right. It's better than a cigarette. Yeah, and that's what most people are, are kind of doing. It doesn't involve combustion um, like it does with a tobacco cigarette, so it, it doesn't have a lot of these chemicals in it, so it must be must be better for you. Most of them have got nicotine. Um, I don't know whether that's got nicotine in it. Most people smoke the e-cigarettes with nicotine because that's what they're looking for, that nicotine kind of hit to to stave off the cravings for the, the cigarette. And nicotine is bad in itself, but then... You've got all these other things um, in there as well. The, some of my research is looking at those flavorings because those flavorings are basically food flavorings and they're fine to ingest, but we have no idea what happens when you put them in the lungs, when you breathe them in. And some of the cigarette machines get up to like 350 degrees Celsius. So what happens to some of these molecules when they get so hot and they start kind of breaking down or forming new, maybe toxic molecules? And so what sort of damage might that do when you're ingesting through this vapour at such a high temperature? It could do a whole lot of things. Um, It could cause kind of scarring in the lung. 
it could induce an immune response, um, which kind of then leads to, to kind of changes in the lung later on. And those, those immune kind of effects and those immune cells that are then drawn into the lung or stimulated may go and affect other organs in the body as well, the same as kind of cigarette smoke does. One particular one, a, a chemical is called diacetyl, and that's in a lot of flavorings, kind of any buttery, creamy flavorings, as well as popcorn. Um, and there was a, a very famous case in California, I think around San Diego area, where workers in a popcorn factory that, that were using this diacetyl to kind of flavor the popcorn, when that got heated up, a lot of them started getting some really serious permanent lung damage, and that was kind of called popcorn lung. And they're using the same or potentially using the same chemical in these e-cigarettes. Um, they obviously don't say which ones they use, which I guess is half the problem. Has it proved to show that it helps get you off the cigarettes? Um, not really. There, there's been not a lot of convincing argument. I, I think from the industry, there's always people that have used it and have no longer smoking tobacco cigarettes. But when we've actually uh, done trials, it hasn't really seemed to be particularly effective and why not? A lot of the time, people are probably using them because they can use them. Um, there's a lot of no smoking areas, and it's taken us a long time to get to a point where we've got some very protective laws for smoking for the rest of society. But those laws aren't there for e-cigarettes. So say I need some nicotine, I can go and have a few puffs of an e-cigarette kind of almost anywhere. And then when I go home, I can do my tobacco cigarettes. And it seems like a lot of the people are using them, what they call dual users. They're using e-cigarettes and tobacco cigarettes. But, uh, or not smoke cigarettes as often if they're using yeah, e cigarette. Yep, yep. And there certainly may be the case those people that smoke both may be smoking less tobacco cigarettes than had they not smoked e-cigarettes. And there's not a lot of hard research on that, whether they're just adding nicotine from there their e-cigarette on top of what they normally smoke um, or whether they are kind of reducing their tobacco cigarettes. But the question in that is just reducing your tobacco cigarettes actually helpful. We kind of don't know that level of, of threshold of if you reduce it by this amount, you'll have positive effects. Obviously, we want people to completely stop. Um, and the question is, are those e-cigarettes stopping people from actually being abstinent? It's kind of continuing kind of drawing them along and making them uh, feel like they're being safer by not smoking as much tobacco cigarettes, but instead they've actually not quit. Um, and that's definitely a big issue. David Chapman, PhD postdoctoral research fellow in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. In January this year, an elderly woman in the US died from a bacterial infection after breaking her hip. This was because the infection she developed was resistant to all known antibiotics and she was therefore untreatable. A new report called Antimicrobial Resistance, a Complex Multifactorial Problem, has been released calling for the Australian government to take the growing issue of antimicrobial resistance more seriously. Maurizio Labate was a co-author of the report and spoke to Think Health reporter Liat Samaglu. When you become infected with a bacterium, although there are other microorganisms that can cause infection, antibiotics are drugs that specifically target the infectious organism without causing harm to your body. And that allows you to clear that infection and become healthy. 
So what's the difference between antibiotics and antimicrobials? That's a good question, and I think there is some confusion. Antimicrobials are anything really that kills or prevents the growth of microorganisms, and that can be bacteria or viruses or protozoa, anything. Uh, there's a complex words, but any kind of microorganism. Bleach can be considered a, an antimicrobial because it does indeed kill or, or prevent the growth of, of certain microorganisms, but you can't exactly use that in treatment. Antibiotics are more specific. That is, they can target the infectious bacterium without hurting your body. So you can inject it or take it orally. It treats the infection, but it doesn't cause illness to you. So they're essentially therapeutic drugs. The issue that was raised in this recent report is the global scale of humans growing resistant to antibiotics. Is that right? Not humans. It's the microorganisms. The so microorganisms. Um, the best way to kind of simplify this is that the more we use antibiotics or antimicrobials, the less effective they become because mm -hmm. microbes learn how to resist them. So that's why we're seeing resistance occurring in infectious microbes that you know, cause disease in humans and animals. So the use of antibiotics or other antimicrobials in clinical environments like hospitals, in the community through GPs or in farming, just increases the rate at which these microbes become resistant and that increases the chances of acquiring an infectious microorganism that then is resistant to our therapeutics. So it's not the human that becomes resistant, it's the microorganism that becomes resistant. Do you see this happening more and more over the next few years? Yes, we're seeing increasing rates of drug resistance. Uh, we're now using some of our last resort drugs to treat uh, some of these infectious organisms. These last resort drugs are more toxic, which means longer stays in hospitals. and um, We have to monitor the patient whilst they're being administered their last resort drugs. What we would expect is that the most vulnerable people will be affected first, mm. usually people that are older, or those that have dampened immune systems or young children. And the report said that antimicrobial resistance is as significant in farming and pets as it is with um, antibiotics. It, it does depend on the country. Yeah. Australia is quite good with use of antibiotics in farming, not so good in therapeutic medicine. We do use a lot of antibiotics through prescription in hospitals and in, in GPs, but other countries may not have the same regulations as Australia, so mm -hmm. they can use quite a lot of um, antimicrobials in farming. And of course, with free trade, we can have that food come into our country and it can be either laced with amounts of antibiotics or even the infectious bacteria that are resistant or resistant bacteria generally. And what about pets? How are pets affected? Well, I mean, I suppose uh, vet veterinarians can prescribe. So when we talk about the use of antibiotics, we talk about prescribers generally, and mm -hmm. that can be a doctor or a vet or a yep. dentist. So all of those uh, prescribers are going to have a role in the dissemination of antibiotic scripts or antibiotics generally. So in terms of uh, pets, uh, taking your pet to a vet, if they've got an infection, a vet can prescribe. Again, it's that use which drives resistance and overuse just makes it faster. So the point is, the more we use, the less effective these drugs become um, in the short term. And in this report, it mentions procedures like hip replacements and um, caesareans won't be able to be performed because of the growing resistance to antimicrobials. Also, will we see uh, some diseases that we thought were eradicated come back with a vengeance? Like what, what diseases may return? Tuberculosis is one of those that's on the rise. We are seeing untreatable tuberculosis, uh, mostly in developing countries, but there's no reason why that organism couldn't jump into uh, developing countries. Recently, there was a report of a resistant malaria 
There are some others that are coming back. E. coli, Klebsiella are your common ones that cause systemic infections in hospitals. Um, there's some urinary tract E. coli, which is mm. becoming highly drug resistant. So, yeah, there are infections that we previously thought uh, were gone that are, are making a resurgence. And what are the solutions? Immunisation, I think, is one of them. It's one of those problems. We call it a complex policy problem mm. because we know that no one solution is going to solve it. it it's a, it's going to require multiple interventions. One of those interventions is going to be the identification of new drugs. And there are researchers who are looking at identifying new antibiotics that we can use. But beyond that, I think we also need to think about how we use these drugs. So not just prescribers, but also users. So prescribers need to get better with regard to how they prescribe. Um, They need to think about when they're prescribing and whether it's necessary for a particular infection. They need to be supported with better diagnostics so they can be sure that what they're treating is indeed, for example, a bacterial infection. Mm. And I think consumers also need to be aware of whether or not they're demanding or wanting antimicrobials when they don't really need them or hoarding or purchasing them off the internet. So it's going to be a whole host of solutions or interventions that we're going to have to put in place. And that's why it's so complex, because we need to engage with all these different stakeholders, the general community, farmers, doctors, dentists, vets. And then it's not only locally, it's also globally, because even if we do good things and things aren't being done overseas, then it's not going to really help us move forward. Are you hopeful for the future? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. I think... um, What I've said previously is that antimicrobial resistance is really a human-made problem in the sense that microbes are simply reacting to the use of antimicrobials by us. I mean, that's what they do. They adapt, and they've been on the planet for three and a half billion years, right? So they've been here longer than us. So they're simply responding to our use of antimicrobials. We're not going to stop that process. But we can, I suppose, modify our behavior to reduce, I think, the what I'd say selection pressure, that is the a pressure that we're putting on microbes to react. And I think in that way we can think about reducing our use to at least increase the longevity of the current drugs we have. Another thing is really about prevention of infectious disease. So good sanitation, good nutrition, obviously, to help boost immunity. Vaccines are going to be a really important player for certain infectious diseases as well. So all those things combined are going to hopefully make an impact in improving the problem of antimicrobial resistance. And how important do you think the government's role in funding more research um, into this area is? Well, look, I mean, I think the government has a really important role to play, not only, I think, in funding research, but also in regulation. I would also say they could have a role in helping in bottom-up education campaigns and letting people become more aware of, or helping people become more aware of what antimicrobial resistance is and what their role in that is. In terms of interdisciplinary research, in our report, we did state that there seems to be a lot of barriers with people from different disciplines working together. We find that when they come together to put grants in, the success for funding is lower than if they submit an application in their own discipline. So we'd like to see those barriers broken down because given the complexity of this issue, given that it spans the animal sciences, the medical sciences, the environmental sciences, we need all those people to kind of work together Given how important these drugs have been in maintaining our health, thinking about all the surgical procedures that we do have in hospitals, uh, without effective antimicrobials or antibiotics, even a simple cosmetic surgery or any kind of small surgical procedure comes with high risk of an infection, you know, and you can die from that. So we really need to focus, I think, and, and try and find appropriate solutions to this problem. Maurizio Labate, Senior Lecturer in Microbiology at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Liat Samoglu. 
You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Nearly one-fifth of Australians are drinking alcohol to the point of short-term harm on a weekly basis. That figure comes out of an Australian Institute of Health and Welfare survey from 2013. Australia has been dubbed a binge-drinking culture, given our close and sometimes volatile relationship with alcohol. This has led to a number of charitable alcohol abstinence programs being born, which encourage Australians to steer off the drink for a month for the sake of a good cause. But just how effective are these campaigns in reducing alcohol consumption in the long term? Julie Robert from the University of Technology, Sydney, undertook a research project looking at the significance of these campaigns and a closer look at where the term binge drinking came from. Well, binge drinking was originally sort of coined in the U.S. um, to describe the college drinking that would happen on the campuses there, which was also usually underage drinking and illegal drinking. It used to be that the concept of a binge was what we would now call going on a bender, you know, three or four days of just getting uproariously drunk. Now we tend, you know, there are very medicalized definitions of what constitutes a binge. But in Australia, it became very prominent right around 2008. And you had a lot of concerns about alcohol-fueled violence, youth drinking, um, the alcopops tax was a, a big topic back then. And there was a lot of concern about particularly young people drinking and the dangerous effects about young people drinking. And so if you think about things like Dry July and FebFast, which all started in Australia right around that time. They also started in the UK around that same time as well. It's almost like binge sobriety became the antidote for binge drinking. What are some of the health risks associated with like a binge drinking culture that we have here in Australia? Well, even if you just look at the media, the things that get reported, you hear about a culture of sexual assault, of accidents, trip and falls, um, people wandering out into traffic. Obviously, alcohol poisoning is certainly one of them. And then the thing that probably gets the most attention is, you know, the the violence, the fights, the one-punch hits, that sort of thing. And the thing that interests me, so for this particular research that you've been undertaking, you've spoken to a large range of different people who are involved or have, you know, participated in something like Dry July. Were the responses you were getting in terms of why they were participating what you expected? Well, I have to say that most people who do embark upon these challenges, you know, you're not going to get underage drinkers necessarily signing up for them. Most people are heading towards their 30s or into their 30s, even into their 40s. That's the typical demographic of the people who participate in these things. A lot of people are doing it as they're getting older. They realize they don't react to alcohol quite as well. They don't pull up quite as well after a big night. And so the health motivation is probably one of the biggest ones for them. I want to see how I feel after, you know, not drinking as much. I think it's a good idea. Everybody at work is doing it. There are some people who got into it for very interesting reasons, though. Um, A challenge issued by a spouse who was thinking that they were drinking too much. Friends who kind of goad them into it, saying, you know, you're such a lush. There's absolutely no way you're going to make it through this month. But probably the funniest one was uh, somebody who actually knows the organizers of one of these campaigns and she just said, I'm doing it to shut them up because they'll, they'll never let me, do, you know, let me live it down if I don't. And that, that was quite interesting. <laughs> so the, the peer pressure to drink is also having its counter effects in the peer pressure to abstain. 
what I thought was interesting that you said is these things are seen as almost a binge sobriety. So mm-hmm. take a month off from drinking to see how I feel or, or for whatever reason that you're doing it. When you were talking to people, do you think that that kind of excused them for just a month or longer? Like, were they thinking, oh, it's just a month, but as soon as that month comes to an end, they'll go back into the same drinking habits that they had before? You get a real variety. And I think from the research that I've done, the younger the person doing it, the more inclined they are to to see fewer health impacts, the more inclined they are to then kind of have the relapse or to to go back to behavior as, as normal. But for most people, and this is where the other studies bear it out, that relapse effect or the rebound is not as severe as what people would anticipate. And for a lot of people, they actually do push that month of sobriety out to six weeks, two months, six months even. And while a lot of people will repeat these campaigns from year to year, they make a habit of taking a pause, sort of reassessing and reevaluating their relationship with alcohol every year or so. And that can never really be a bad thing. Is that also maybe people who would continue to drink but do it to a lesser degree? Absolutely. So they often find that simply they don't have the tolerance to drink as much as they used to immediately after a month of sobriety. So it's a much more gradual return to patterns of old. They might also swap out quantity for quality. Somebody said that he used to drink beer and now he drinks expensive scotch, but because it's so expensive, he doesn't drink nearly as much. It's all just part of that process of reevaluating. And sometimes it's a conscious decision and other times it just isn't. You know, you might go back, drink as much as you used to before, and then say, "Mm, okay, well, I don't feel that well, so maybe the next time I'll, instead of ordering a bottle of wine and splitting it with my partner, we might just order a glass each. Australia does have a very heavy drinking culture, and that's particularly evident if you live in Australia. (laughs) Yes. Do you think that these initiatives or these programs have a place, or they shouldn't be seen as a substitute for efforts to talk about alcohol on a larger scale to be like there should be programs to address maybe we should drink less alcohol as opposed to just look at it to drink less over the course of one month oh absolutely and because these initiatives are voluntary you're never going to get the bulk of the population you're getting people who are already keen or at least predisposed to reevaluate their relationship with alcohol and we know from studies both in australia and elsewhere the hardest drinkers drink the most amount of alcohol because we tend to survey this in terms of volume of pure alcohol consumed per person. And there are complete abstainers that'll skew that number. And then there are also people who who drink quite a lot. And so those larger population level interventions are always going to be needed. And to think about that on a daily basis, not just in February, October, and July. Did you see a lot of people in terms of health benefits associated with these sorts of initiatives? Like, did you have any research done that kind of does like a follow-up in terms of how it affects their livelihood and just their general health? Yeah, that's a great question. I personally haven't done it, but the research that's coming out around these types of initiatives worldwide is showing health benefits in a very concrete way. But as we're studying them more and more, We're also extending the period of study. So when we first started looking at these initiatives, really talked to folks uh, about a month after they finished, it was usually talking to people who completed it successfully. And 
studies that have been coming out of the UK recently have started surveying people before they begin this, the campaign. They look at them about a month after or immediately after, and then at the six-month mark. In terms of the medical research that's come out, they have shown that liver function, for instance, immediately after a month of sobriety improves. They haven't done a longer-term study to look at vital statistics, you know, blood sugar and blood pressure, all those other measures. That's still to be done uh, for those groups. Julie Robert, Senior Lecturer in the School of International Studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. And remember, if you have any questions after today's show, go see your GP. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favorite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time.